this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. So a lot of service company owners secretly aspire to be product company owners. You know, the business of running a service company can be exhausting. You've got clients to manage. You're always you know, constantly kowtowing to your biggest customers. Every job is different and it becomes exhausting. And so many of us decide to move into a product business. And because from the other side of the fence, it looks like product businesses are much more fun. They're scalable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so my next guest, Talia, did exactly that. She used to run an event service business and she decided to pivot it into a product business. She built a piece of technology and she thought, you know, here we go, I can make a product out of this. But instead of doing what most of us do, which is just move away from or kind of walk away from the service business, what Talia decided to do was package up the old service business model and the revenue and the contracts she'd created in that side of the business and sell it as a going concern, separate from the product business, the technology company. She had a successful exit and now she's got the money and the funds to go and build a new company, the technology company that she always aspired to. It's not something that is always the first reaction for a lot of us as service company owners, but I think Talia provides a really interesting case study that there is value in the service revenue that you've got, and instead of just walking away from it, you might be able to sell it. Here's Talia to tell you how she did it. Talia, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about this event business that you had. Well, you know, the, the event, live events is a huge industry. It's a $650 billion plus is spent on meetings and events by large corporations. And at the time that I launched it back in 2004, companies were going to big hotels and asking them to provide all the kind of miscellaneous services from transportation to um, floral to rentals to music. And the hotels themselves really did not want to be uh, worrying about trying to provide those types of services. And we saw an opportunity to put people inside the hotel and be able to provide all those services on behalf of the hotel to all those large corporations. And so this was an like you were basically offering event management support, right? So you weren't you weren't becoming a florist yourself or becoming a limo company. You were hiring those those services out, but but playing a bit of the middleman and project manager. Is that right? Correct. So if you've got a large company that comes and they they go to different cities all the time, and so there for them to go and try to to work directly with a local florist or directly with a um, a, a transportation provider or directly with, uh, you know, some of the entertainment, it's a lot of extra work for them. So they would hire a local event company who kind of serves as the general contractor and provide the whole budget and the, and really the vision on, and the design on what they're trying to accomplish for this event. 
And then what we did is really take that vision and, um, and, and, and produce that for the company. And we would then hire the additional suppliers locally that were needed in order to do that. Got it. And so what was the revenue model? I mean, did you charge out by hours or by projects or how did, how did that work? So that's a great question. So what, when, when we came in and I saw this opportunity back in, in 2004, I, was, I always try to say what's different about what everyone else is doing. And there were a number of things. But one of those was I saw an opportunity if we could aggregate our buying power and be able to have preferred suppliers, you know, preferred transportation supplier, preferred um, florists, and we could really create a really efficient process of being able to order from them then potentially we can negotiate to buy much better from our suppliers um, than typically people would were doing at that time. And so instead of charging our customers a service fee for providing our services, we would just um, charge them for the actual services that we were giving. So for the transportation, for the floral, for the entertainment. And we made our money on the difference between what that retail price was and what we were able to purchase it at. Um, by really being able to put kind of all those really tight processes in place, the technology that we had at the time in the ordering process, and leveraging our buying power. Um, and so that was a really unique model where large corporations were able to get um, these great services and these kind of value-added services for the price of really if they had to go buy those services directly themselves. Got it. And so what would your typical margin be? I mean, if I bought a $100 bouquet of flowers from you, you might charge me a hundred dollars for that. What what would what would you be buying that for? So our goal was to try and be able to come up with a um, a win win with the suppliers in which we had about a twenty percent margin, right? So we would be able to buy that at about eighty dollars if we were going to sell it for a hundred dollars. Got it. So another way to think about it is almost like a twenty percent commission. I know that's not the way you structure yep. it, but for folks listening, that might be more helpful for them to to envision. So, you, you, so ta- okay. So I, I think I understand the business, kind of a curious business to get into. How did you, how did you stumble into this? So um, always been passionate about business, love um, process, logistics, automation, and technology. And my husband was in um, music. So he had a band. And so we started as that small supplier that was providing music um, and, and musical entertainment for these events. And so we actually went to the hotel one of the, the friends of ours um, was the director of catering at the Hilton Chicago. And I remember this back in it's probably 2003. And um, we asked him, can you can you send us more business? The, these companies come to you at the hotel. Can you refer the band? And he's the one who said, it's not just the band that, that we need. We need all these services. I don't want my team who is really focused on selling food and beverage that has the margin for us. And that's a core of our services to be providing this. So if you can come in and and be based in the hotel and help do it. So that was sort of the eye-opening. And I looked at it and I was like, wow, I couldn't believe how the industry was operating and how manual it was that you literally, people would sit and call up. They'd, uh, uh, a, they'd be someone who comes to the hotel and say, let's say I need you know, 30 centerpieces for a dinner. They literally stop, they go call three different uh, florists, get a quote at that time, potentially faxed to them, right? Uh, maybe emailed at some point. And then they'd compare and then they'd go back and say, okay, great, I'll use you. And then they'd go take a Word document and they'd create a proposal for the customer. And just that time, how much money could you make on those 30 centerpieces by going back and forth and waiting for that, uh, all those suppliers to call you back with a quote? So how I thought about it with technology was if I built technology that created catalogs, I, I found preferred suppliers 
and they built their catalog and everything was priced in advance. So when that call came into my um, my salespeople that were sitting in the hotels, they could go into our technology system and quickly be able to just look at, okay, $30 centerpieces, five choices, send it off to the, to the customer. It automatically went to the customer. They accepted it online. It automatically sent the purchase order out to the supplier, right? Everything automated versus all that time. And that's how you created the efficiencies and in turn be able to create the ability to have a, a model in which we were able to make enough money off the margin. So was this technology that you built from the ground up? Did you license somebody else's sort of project management software? Or did you build it all in-house? Built it all in-house. So really, my passion is always about kind of thinking of that process and how to automate it. I'm, I'm a big Six Sigma fan. And so you think of each little step uh, that you can take out and the efficiencies that you can create from it. And so um, so we built it in-house and, uh, and really operate our entire business. Well, out of interest, what software platform did you build it on? So like what code at the time, yeah. do you mean? Like, so yeah. I think at the time um, we might have used PHP and now in our in our in my current company, we use .NET, but I think at the time we used PHP. Got it. So you've got, uh, I mean, so you've got this platform that you've built all in-house. You're building the company up. I mean, give us a sense of how, how, how big you got it by the time you decided to think about selling it well, in terms of revenue or, or some other metric number of employees. So I'll share with you an interesting story, right? And it's, and now I'm on my second company and it's, it's similar, only some of the timelines were even longer. I think the bigger you go, the longer it takes. So when we decided, when we, this opportunity came up at the Hilton um, back and we said, okay, great. This sounds like an opportunity. We'll start by putting people in the Hilton. We thought, okay, maybe it'd be two months, right? We get our contract with the Hilton. We can start it. Well, when it comes to these large companies, Nothing gets done in two months, right? So we're, we're sitting there, we're building the technology. I'd hired someone because I knew nothing about events, right? I really didn't. It was all fresh for me. And I remember, you know, that was, it was April of 2004 where, where we launched it. And then every month was, you know, it was another reason why we couldn't get that contract done with the Hilton. And finally we said, you know what, we can't just rely on one. Let's go out of all Chicago and pitch this to, um, to all the hotels. And our worst case scenario is that we wind up with too many hotels saying they want us to come on site and, and provide all these services to their customers. And so we went out and did that. And then it was really slow. And it was literally, and we had taken like a $330,000 credit line to be able to support. And we were literally at the end. I think at, at the time I had four kids, um, baby on the way. And my husband was like, okay, that's it. We spent everything. We're, you know, we've tried, it didn't come through and there was $50,000 left. And I remember it so clearly. And I said, you know what? I really believe what we're doing. As soon as those contracts hit, it's really going to happen. And so we said, fine, it's $50,000 more. In October of 2004, um, actually the Palmer house hit first um, and we got that contract done, went in house. And then a month later, finally the Hilton and so from October to December, we did 400,000 in revenue just from those hotels. In 2005, we went up to 4 million as a company. And then in 2006, we went to 6.8 million. So we just like, it was just this drastic growth by adding additional hotels where we put people. And the technology platform was so critical for us. And I also created um, kind of this EVEDU, we called it, or, you know, like a university where literally we were hiring people and training people so quickly and we needed our processes to be so consistent um, from the hotel to hotel that from between the technology and this like university and training, 
we literally, you know, were able to bring people in and get things up and running within 90 days to support this expansion, but it was pretty crazy. Hmm. And then how, how big did you get it before you decided to sell? So ultimately we wound up getting like right above 9 million as a company. Um, and to the point that we were, you know, at that point is when we were ready to sell. And what triggered you to want to sell? So, um, my passion really from all of this was around the technology. I loved building the software and automating the process. And I love the event industry, but, and I love building the business, but the software was my passion. And, and I also wanted to grow. So we had really um, built up in Chicago. We really had Chicago. We took the market. And so when we thought about expansion, it was go duplicate this in more cities, right? That was one option. Or, you know, I was really thinking about my passion, which was the technology and being able to to sell the service piece and pull the technology and go build this as a huge company around technology. And I remember and it was, you know, while I started with that almost losing everything and, and on my last, you know, $50,000 of the credit line, um, it actually once we hit um, that following year with a four million in revenue, the company started to be profitable and then it was very profitable. So this was a really nice lifestyle business. And I could have really kept a lifestyle business going for a while. It was great. One year I was able to go away for the summer for six weeks with my family overseas. But as a entrepreneur who, um, who has something inside me that is never settled and always wanting to grow and always looking to, um, be able to, to, to find the next thing, um, I knew I needed to keep growing the company. And so I had met with, um, a guy by the name of Michael Farrow, who I met through the Chicagoland Entrepreneurial Center at the point where I was sort of at that juncture. And um, he really inspired me to think big on how on, and what I really loved about building a software company and really taking all of this and really transforming the event industry with the software. And if I'd done it here as an event company, how much bigger this could be. And so at that point, I really decided that for me, um, I knew I had that, that ability and that motivation to build a really huge software company. Um, and so that was the point where I decided I would sell off the service piece and be able to pull the, um, the, the software. And I actually launched my software company at the same time of still having the service business and had to run both of them for a year. So as you know, for listeners, they might be a bit confused by the idea of the second company. So, so really as, as a bit, avid sort of evolved, it went, it became sort of two separate companies. You had the, the service business that was, uh, servicing these, uh, events owners, if you will, companies that were running these corporate events. And then you had this technology that, you'd built in house. And it, and it, it seems like as time went on, the, the two started in your mind, at least to become separate businesses. Is that fair? Exactly. And I saw I could take the R and D and the technology and really, as opposed to being an in-house system, really turning it into um, a software that could be used by all kinds of, you know, by other event companies and ultimately for the industry to be used um, by large corporations to be able to purchase from their suppliers, because all of that data, right? If my, my model was so specific around leveraging my buying power and really having the data to be able to make those buying decisions. And that is so critical to these large corporations so that they can leverage their data um, and be able to, to buy better, right? And drive cost savings. 
So it was really kind of taking that and, and, and then having the opportunity to take it on such a larger scale. And so, I mean, help me understand what you were selling in the service business. Cause it sounded like, you know, the technology, I, I sort of get why that's valuable, but you saw an opportunity to kind of parse out the service business and sell it as a standalone business. What, what were you selling in that sort of standalone business uh, of the service side of the business? Well, because the service business was so successful based on using the technology, um, you had to have, keep that as part. So what I did is I turned the service business into a customer of the software business. So when I sold my service business, um, they were my first customer, right, of the software side of it. So they still continued to use it. But instead of obviously paying to continue to build it, they were just paying a, like a license fee, right, to be able to use it. Um, and then the service business had all these contracts with all these hotels around Chicago and contracts with large corporations. So the value, you know, I think it's tough when you talk about a service business um, because how do you value something like that? You know, there's not assets, there's not inventory. And for us, it was really the contracts that we had, um, the hotel contracts and the, and the large corporation contracts that allow you to really, as long as you continue to execute and service those customers well, you could forecast a certain amount of business that you'd be able to continue to have, you know, in the during the term of those contracts. So they looked at how long we had left on those contracts and the value of those contracts. But I guess if I'm playing, you know, black hat and I'm I'm playing the shoes, I'm in my in the shoes of the potential buyer of the service business, I'd be saying, okay, yeah, I'm going to buy the service business, and all of a sudden wake up and be competing with a bunch of other companies just like me who have access to this software that you've sold them. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that was part of the value, right? So if we, if I would have left the software in it, I would have gotten a lot more money for the business. Um, and so that was part of what went into the pricing. And so it was really the, the value was of course, having the software was just a piece of it, but the, the value to the, um, to the new owner was really the hotel contracts and the corporate contracts. Because in a service business, I think you find they compare it to, well, what will it cost me to start it on my own, right? Because if there's not assets or they're not inventory, I'm buying reputation and I'm buying contracts. So when you compared it to, to be able to get in the door and get these hotel contracts and, the, and to get these corporate contracts for years and relationship building and a lot of work, that's where you see that value. So while they understood that potentially other companies, especially, and this is local, right? So they only service the Chicago area that now the software could become available to other companies within the Chicago area, they still had so many advantages. They're, they saw the huge advantage of being able to have all those contracts. I find it fascinating that you had the foresight intuition to, to sell the, the service side of the business. Because I think a lot of companies, I mean, everybody, not everybody, many of the people listening to this will be saying, uh, you know, they'll be running a service company and they'll say, yeah, sure, I get it. I'd love to productize. I'd love to have a piece of technology. I'd love to get the better scale and the better multiple. And, and they will pivot their business and, you know, make it, take it from a service business to sell, you know, to a sellable, you know, uh, scalable company. But in your case, you made that decision, but then instead of just walking away from the service assets, uh, you said, hey, there's value here in these contracts. Let me try to monetize that. Yep, that's exactly right. And I also really was critical for me to keep a client, right? So I ran it for a year and it was too much, right? I had to have both and the focus and also 
my service business was wholly owned, right? We owned it. And the software business, I knew I was bringing outside investors and there was going to be a lot more money involved. And I knew new outside investors did not want me having a, another business. There was also conflict, right? Potential. So all of those were reasons why I knew I had to really sell the service piece of it. But there was, it was an, it was a nine plus million dollar business. And did you have a uh, council, do you have a board of directors, a peer group that, that gave you the idea uh, to sell the service business or at least sort of put that in your mind? Or, or was that something that kind of came to you? Like, again, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put myself yeah. in the mind of, of our listeners and, and trying to get them, give them a sense of what they should be looking for to know if it's, if it's a business pivot, in which case you're just changing your business model, or if not only are you pivoting, but also you're pivoting away from an asset that you might want to monetize. So that's a great question. So I actually, even before, um, I always built the company to sell it, right? I, I, I was not looking to build a family business. I really, and everything I did with the business, I really thought about how to scale it. And, you know, as we talked about that kind of training program and, and processes and procedures that were identical and technology. So we built it to really sell it. Um, and I actually almost sold it earlier in 2008, right before the huge crash. I almost had a deal done, which would have included the technology and the service. And then I was actually supposed to go and, and work in that new company and help them develop their technology. Um, and so I, it wasn't, you know, that I all of a sudden thought about that I had planned to sell the whole thing. And that was uh, the multiple on that deal was four times what I wound up, you know, getting just for the service business at the time. Um, and so when that deal fell through because of the economy at the time and things were so, um, especially for events after 2008, it was really tough market. Um, I started to, I had that meeting with, with Michael Farrow, as I mentioned, and I really started to think about my passion and that I really did want to build a software company in this space, in the event industry. Um, and, and so that's where I really said, okay, instead of selling this as a whole company, can I just sell the service piece and continue to build the technology company? Got it. So let's dig into the sale of the service company. So did you hire an M&A professional and take it to market? Like to walk us through once you made the decision to sell the service division, what was the next step? Yeah. So I think in small businesses, like hiring someone outside like that probably can get expensive and I'm not sure how valuable that is. Um, so I really was networking myself internally. Well, who would be, the right buyer. So even when I started the business and I built it to sell it, I always thought about who my buyers would be and lots of decisions that I made along the road as I was building the company were thinking about the potential buyers of the business, right? And trying to continue to build the value of the business. So that also goes to how much money do you take yourself as, as a salary versus how much do you show as income from the business, right? The types of people that you hire. All of that went into my decisions as I as I built the company to make sure that I was building something that would be really valuable to sell. Um, and so when it came time, I had already had years in advance, had thought about the types of buyers um, and then made sure to be networking with those types of buyers way before I was ready to sell, to understand the expectations, what they were looking for. So by the time I came to the point of selling, I had a number of people that I was able to talk to myself and had relationships with. So that's how I approached the process. So walk us through the next step. So you have this short list. I mean, how many companies were on the short list of people you've been networking with along the way? Um, there were probably about five in the end okay. that I was talking to. So do you, do you reach out to them and say, like, what do you say? Hey, I'm thinking of selling my company. 
Um, so uh, I think I always talk about um, that next step for myself um, and what I really want to do. I think everyone knew I was very different than the typical owner operator of event companies. Um, and so I, you know, I would say I did kind of reach out or, you know, after I sort of built the relationship, I actually would set it up. I think it's always better for people to come to you and say, Hey, have you ever thought about selling your business and really flip it the other way? Yeah, sure. But and how so, did you do that? So I would just talk about all the unique and different things that I was doing, the plan for scaling it. Like some of, a lot of these would have been competitors, right? So if I was going to go to multiple cities, I could get in and start competing with some of them. So I just really was able to start get the conversation to the point where they would say, well, you know, is, is this something you really want to do, Tally? You love the software side or do you think about selling it? So um, that was a big part of what I did, um, especially for that deal in 2008. That definitely went that way. Um, and they really came and, and were kind of chasing us to buy it from us versus us trying to push to sell it. Um, once we got to 2010, when we actually really did sell it, um, I just, you know, I really said it as like, I went to some of the others and I said, look, I've got two people that are interested in buying it. Um, it could wind up being, you know, significant comp competition for you. Are you interested in looking at what we're doing here and potentially putting a bid in for the business? So that's sort of how I set up that process. So you got a, a you know, a half dozen folks kind of interested. Did you create uh, some sort of document that described the business? I mean, I think M&A professionals would call it a SIM, uh, confidential information memorandum, as, this, as my memory goes, but basically some sort of deck or book that, that would uh, describe the business. Did you have that? Um, I, I mean, I think the big was the financials, right? I really spent a lot more time on really giving them transparency into how the business was making money and what the key assets that I had that drove those dollars, right? So those, like, again, back to those contracts, like how are those contracts affecting the P&L and how will it affect the next, the forecast, right? So people typically, I found that they were looking at the three years, right? last year, the current year, and the year forward, and taking an average to figure out what your multiple is going to be on valuation. And so my job was really to, to be able to have the business look as robust as possible from a financial perspective and feel and really get the confidence that what I was sharing from a financial perspective that the business could really perform at. And did, did you, I mean, that's a lot of confidential data to put in the hands of your potential competitors if the yep. business doesn't sell. I mean, how did you kind of manage that? So you do an NDA, right, of course, but um, I was still careful, right, until it got to certain stages in the negotiation. And I knew also really to try and figure out how serious people were. So, for example, I think when you're buying a smaller business and your sale, the people I was selling it to were, were definitely smaller business owners. Um, the one question is, it's they're interviewing you, but you should be interviewing them, right? So if you're selling your business for $500,000 or a million dollars, well, is that buyer able to come up with that cash? What's their expectations? Do they think they're going to pay you out over three or four years, right? But, so, but talk, I, Tally, you yeah, talk about your own sure. deal here. So, did, did you do that in this case? Did you actually, I mean, the, of these five folks, did you know that all five had the ability to transact, or were you skeptical that maybe one or two of them didn't have the cash to do the deal? That's exactly right. So I did kind of do that sort that test, right? And really made sure that they could prove that they could really get the deal done before I shared my next level of kind of information about the company. And so, you know, then it got down to two, one who I really knew could do it. It would happen to wind up being, which is kind of funny, 
is that the that director of catering that I went to that helped me start that company back in 2004, he was looking to purchase a business for his daughter who um, who was really ready to start. And so I actually wound up selling the business to him. Um, and so there was a relationship there, right? There was a trust there. But the other um, really serious uh, offer was a company um, that I also seriously considered. I qualified that they were able to 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 do the deal. Um, and just ultimately, in the end, for me, the decision was that um, it was so critical that this company become the customer of my software company, because that for me kind of was the long, long term, um, really big win, is that I was really confident and had assurance that because I had a really long term relationship with that director of catering, um, that I would sell it to him and, um, and that they would, they ensured they signed a seven year deal with me of that license fee, um, the license for my, my software company. So that's kind of what made the decision for me. So the other party, although you were considering them seriously, was not prepared to commit for seven years on the software. Correct. They were in commit and they were also, you know, it was new, right? We they really had to to really be a little bit more flexible with us as we were kind of really building the software as an early adopter to be a scale, right? Not just for in for just that one company. And so that really was drove my decision as to who to go to. Okay. So so the winning company was what was their name? Um, so access Chicago. So we sold it to, so, um, Ed Chen was actually the guy's name who purchased it. Um, and they turned it to an access Chicago. Okay. So, um, so you got access Chicago is the winning bid. Let's call them, you know, we'll, we'll call them access Chicago. <laughs> How original the, uh, the losing bid, let's call them, uh, the, the losing bid here. Um, to get the, to be clear here, uh, Axis Chicago was, was willing to sign up for the seven year deal. Um, give us a sense of the difference in price that they were offering between Axis Chicago and the losing bid. I mean, were they pretty much the same or were there, was there a big difference in terms of the, what they were offering? They were pretty close, um, in what they were offering. So it was, it did really come down to the confidence for myself and being able to help me to, to build up the software company by having them as a licensee. Got it. Um, and then I think the other piece was my comfort level, right? With, uh, from a relationship perspective was so much longer and I was concerned about the people, right? I worked so hard to build this company with people. We were incredibly successful and I didn't do it on my own. And I wanted to make sure that the company would continue as a great company, that the people who helped me build that company would enjoy the new owners. And so I had both of them I thought would be really good, but I had a really, you know, the confidence because of the relationship and the trust that Access Chicago would definitely take the people and, and that I knew my, my people would be really happy with that new ownership. Got it. And so I understand it was a seven figure uh, sale. Can you give us a sense of the multiple of earnings that, that access paid? Yeah. So I think in this, this type of service business, the kind of the trend was a four time multiple of EBITDA. Um, now had I kept my technology together, right. And it was a technology enabled service company, that multiple would have been significantly higher, but because, you know, obviously this was purely, they were buying the service company. It just went straight at that four time multiple. Got it. And then of that four times, uh, did access pay a hundred percent up front or was there sort of a, um, you know, an earnout period or, you know, a holdback or a vendor take back? Like how did, how was it structured? I guess. 
So that's interesting. Um, so that was part of the negotiation on the license deal. So the, you know, the kind of, they were smart on the other side. They said, the longer you want your license deal on the software, the longer opportunity to do that to the payout. Uh, but we wound up getting quite a bit of it up front. And then we had small pieces of it that were um, paid out over a five-year period, but not based on performance of the company, just more that that was the ability from the new owner to be able to cash flow the cost, right, of sure. the deal. Sure, yeah. So for listeners, it would be helpful to know, and we don't need the exact number, but you know, was it sort of kind of closer to half up front and yeah. half over the rest of the sort of term of the deal? Yeah, it was about 65% up front and the 35% over a term of the deal. And it was, um, and it kind of, it was higher in the first year and then kind of accelerated down um, over that time period. And then what happens if Access uh, Chicago, I keep, I keep wanting to say Access Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> what happens if Access Chicago um, reneged on the 35%, stopped paying? What, what, what sort of, so I held about. as the collateral the a stock certificate of the company, right? So ultimately, if they didn't pay, I got the company back. Now, the risk you take in a service company is if you sell it and they 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 don't execute well and they lose the customers, right? And those contracts and everything I had sold them, what value would be left in the end? So I knew that that was definitely a risk in doing that, which again goes back to who are you selling it to and the confidence that they're going to be able to continue to run a great company. And then the, the other option, the losing bid, was it similar where they were saying like, we'll pay four times EBITDA, but we're going to do it over time. Or were they saying all of it up front, maybe? So, yeah. And I think that it, it's, it was a choice, right? And in fact, I think I actually wound up with the sort of a choice on both. I'd get a higher price by doing some of it over time or a lower price by doing it all at once, right? And so I think it's like a risk reward scenario that you have to figure out, but the more confident you are again in the new owners that they'll execute well, then the taking it over time could be more valuable. It could be higher priced, right? Ultimately for you, but there's less risk in taking it all up front. Right, and how did it end up working out? I know you sold in 2010, so we're four years into the five-year term. Um, yeah, so it, well, they're doing really well. They're a great customer for Eved as a as a software customer. Um, still, really good friends of mine, which is good because you know that could be challenging sometimes um, if you're doing business with friends. Um, and I actually wound up um, partway through, kind of cutting a deal to um, to wind up just taking the the last three years and doing it in one lump sum um, at a slightly lower amount, just because that that it was particularly for me was a a, a, a better opportunity at the time. Um, so we we kind of renegotiated the deal two years in. Hmm, interesting. I'd be curious to know how you structured it from a legal perspective. Now, I know you're not a lawyer, but I, in layman's terms, how you structured the legals of the deal to make it clear that the technology platform that you wanted to keep was not going with the service business. How did you, how did you kind of make that crystal clear to Ed and Axe of Chicago that he wasn't getting, uh, you know, that, that, the code and, and all of the sort of intellectual property associated with this software? So great question. Um, so as I mentioned, I had a year where I had started the software company before I actually wound up going and doing the deal. And so knowing that that could be sticky, right? If, if they think they're getting that and then suddenly they're not, that's not great, right? You're not going to set yourself up to get your highest price. So I actually created the software company before I really was starting to sell 
and I transferred all the IP of the value of the software into this other company. So it was never on the table, right? And I actually created the license agreement between my software company and my service company before I actually went to market to sell the company. So when I was selling it, it was already a licensee of my software company, no, you know, no, no IP at all um, as part of its uh, core business. It sounds like you did so many things right here. Um, I don't want to be, a, you know, be accused of being a sycophant, but I, you know, I think you've, <laughs> you've done so many of, of the right things. If you had it to do over again, is there one thing that you might do differently about the sale of the service division? Um. That's a great question. I think I did do a lot. I think the things I did right were really thinking about it way in advance, planning for it, all the steps building it to sell. Um, I I think that um, I, that's a really good question. Um, I think, I'm not sure. You know, I, I don't know that there is anything specifically I can come up with off the top of my head that would be different. I, I, I thought the lawyers were good. The communication was good. At some point, it was a little bit rough. Um, you know, as I said, Ed and I were really good friends. And sometimes when we were sitting on opposite, opposite sides of the table, that was really hard for me. Not only were we friends, he was like my mentor that helped teach me everything. So that was an uncomfortable place for me to be on the opposite side of the table from him in some of those. So, um, and I don't know that I would, I could do it differently again. Um, uh, the other thing I guess maybe that comes to mind is that when you think of your executive team that you're transferring over to the new owners, I think it's really important that you make sure that all of them are, are going to be really strong for your new owners way before you're even talking about a sale. Um, and make sure that's lined up because trying to change out executive team at the time of sale is not is it lowers your value, right? Are you so speaking I, from experience there? Yeah, I probably yeah. So I left my executive team in, and um, I think that potentially, um, and then there was an was at right at prior to the sale, there was conversation about changing one out. Um, and that created some stress, right, right at the wrong time. And it happens to be that the new owners kept the, the executive in and that was that that worked OK. Um, but I think had I do, done that again, I would have really made sure that the executives that were in would have been ones who not only were good at running the company, but also good at the transition and really helped in the new owners um, and made sure that was at least six to eight months prior to when selling the company. Great advice. So Ed writes you this fat check with more to come. Did you buy yourself any trophies or did you just <laughs> stick it right into the company and, and keep scaling? So that is great. So um, two things to that. So I decided that um, I wanted to do something for myself and for my family. I've got um, five kids. Um, and so I wound up uh, building a house that was really important to me. And that's part of why I wound up a couple of years later renegotiating it because I wanted to finish the house <laughs> and it was better to get the funds up front. Um, so I did do that for myself and, and it was totally, it was great. And it was something I could share with my family who also obviously had plenty of uh, time away from me during the time of building that company. So we all got to enjoy it. Um, and I'd also say it's interesting because you keep thinking about building it, building it and the point of selling it. And then all of a sudden you, you, the money transfers and it's in your bank account and you're, you think, oh, that's it. 
And so for the moment, you know, for a day, maybe that's really exciting, but then all of it turns to your journey getting there. It's, you know, the people, um, the experiences, the challenges that you had that you overcame, and you just really think about the journey and you realize that the journey of building the company is actually so much more exciting than the actual selling point. And so what I learned from that is to really make sure I enjoy the journey. And so now that I'm building um, the Eved as, um, and we're an event commerce company and we're really trying to solve from the large corporation, right? The big fortune 500 companies that are truly the ones spending all this money um, on live events and giving them, uh, giving them spend management software to really be able to manage it. It's a much bigger play than the last one, um, but really taking with me is is enjoy the journey. You know, don't just focus on at the end because that part lasts an, a day. You know, enjoy all the steps of building it. Tally Michia, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.